I will tell you a thing about your new name, Stilgar said. The choice pleases us. Muad'Dib is wise in the ways of the desert. Muad'Dib creates his own water. Muad'Dib hides from the sun and travels in the cool night. Muad'Dib is fruitful and multiplies over the land. Muad'Dib we call instructor of boys. That is a powerful base on which to build your life, Paul Muad'Dib, who is usul among us. We welcome you. Hello, and welcome back to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Frank Herbert's Dune. This is Season 7, Episode 6, Spanus Bogen, covering Book 2, Ma'adib, Chapter 7 to 11. The hosts have varying levels of knowledge of this book in this series. My name is Dan, and I have read up to this part and watched the whole movie now. Congrats on finishing the movie, Dan. Yeah, uh, this is Talia. <laughs> I've read uh, all of the uh, Frank Herbert Dune books, and I'm rereading along with the podcast. My name is Priya, and I've read up to this part in the book, and I have also watched the full movie, the recent one, <laughs> and I echo Talia's congratulations to you, Dan, on having finished the movie. <laughs> and this is Amin, and I have only read up to the point that we are at right now, and I have seen both the more recent movie and the older 80s Dune as well. Yeah, about the movie. So I think like I had thought like the like the last chapter, the last episode we did was like the end of the uh was like when the movie ended, but like I ended up watching like the part where the, the dual part. And I was like, I didn't read that yet, but I was like, I'm gonna power through it. I just watched it. So I knew it was happening. So I got spoiled on this con. But I was like, is that I didn't did know. Did you if, really like, think Paul it, was going to die? Like no, right? no, 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 no. I knew like there was the duel was gonna happen or I I don't know if they just made it up for the movie or whatever, but like then it, this, they started and you know, then it started happening. I was like, oh, okay, I know what's going to happen now. <laughs> also, not to spoil the movie, but the duel happens a little bit differently if I'm remembering, if I'm remembering correctly, doesn't I it? I don't remember even. <laughs> I watched it like in that, you know, uh, back, uh, back scene stuff for us. Like it's been like a while since we recorded the last one. I think it's been like two months or something. Or uh, So and I watched the movie like probably two months ago. So um, I don't even remember how the duel ended. I remember I don't think them that being it a duel. Could have been spoiled though in the movie. Like obviously the victor is the hero, Paul Muadib. I'm yeah. I'm speaking more to like the manner in which exactly the manner in which fought is what's what's interesting. Yes, I I don't I don't remember. Are are those different between the movie and the book? Do I do I say it? Do I spoil? We you can edit it out if we're not to spoil it for the readers, but we've all watched the movie. We put um, a disclaimer, so I think it's fine. Okay, cool. Um, I wasn't sure if I remember correctly whether or not Paul actually kills the guy at the end, Jameis. I think he did. Mm-hmm. Did he kill him in the in the movie as well as in the book? Because in the book he kills him, but I have this weird recollection that in the movie he let him live. Or is am I wrong? Now I don't remember. Now you're making me question it. I think I thought he did. Now I would be might, quite I'm... surprised if they let him live because even in this rendition, you know, he tries to yield. He asks him to yield when he draws first blood. And right. I'm like, no, like that's not that's not how it's done here. So I'm gonna have you... to go back and watch that scene again. All right. <laughs> yeah. So homework for Priya. <laughs> yes. I will report back in the next uh in the next recording. No, no, just log off, watch it now, and then come back and <laughs> keep recording. Right, so we can be recording way into the night, yeah, <laughs> as we all plan to do. <laughs> the The new movie, the part two, comes out this year, right? Like later this year. I thought I remember seeing that somewhere. 
that's homework for you, Dan, to, yeah. to look up when it comes out. We are experts on the Dune films, obviously. Um, but we also are experts on chapters 7 through 11 of the Dune book. Would you like me to tell you what happened in this section in case anyone wasn't scrupulously reading along? Yeah, let's do it. Cool. And you can uh, take us into the characters right after. Paul and Jessica awake outside their still tent and set out. A worm is summoned to the thumper Paul has placed, and they inadvertently set off drum sand and have to run to safety in a basin that is clearly man-made, full of plants. Paul and Jessica listen carefully for signs of life and see only a mouse. Despite their attention, the Fremen sneak up on the Atreides, revealing that they can surpass both Mentat awareness and Bene Gesserit training. Liet Kynes, semi-delirious and without a stillsuit, is wandering the desert. He chooses not to dig himself under the sand for heat protection because he smells the explosive potential of what he calls the pre-spice mass. Though he clearly knows Arrakis better than any, he perishes alone in the sand. During his dying moments, and I quote here, a profound clarity filled Kynes' mind. He saw quite suddenly a potential for Arrakis that his father had never seen. The possibilities along that different path flooded through him. No more terrible disaster could befall your people than for them to fall into the hands of a hero, his father said. We can follow up on that later. Paul and Jessica are recognized by Stilgar, who attended a ducal council and left with Duncan Idaho. The Fremen have been primed to see the value in keeping them alive. They see Jessica's strength and call her a weirding woman and Stilgar promises his countenance for both, in exchange for learning her fighting ways. After their scuffle, Paul finally meets Cheney, the girl from his dreams. She gives him food with a strong concentration of spice. Paul, stirred up into prescient visions by it, sees many possible futures surrounding this cave, most hinting at violence, and many ending in his gory death. Stilgar confirms the suspicion about ecological adaptation, saying, we bribe the guild with a monstrous payment of spice to keep our skies clear of satellites and such that none may spy on what we do to the face of Arrakis. He in turn probes her for signs of being the Bene Gesserit from their legends. Jessica leads a prayer with a correct call and response and awes the Fremen, who welcome her as a future Sayadina reverend mother. In the climax of the section, the man who Paul bested, Jameis, challenges Jessica in single combat. Since Paul has been tested with the Gomjabar, everyone, barring Cheney, views him as a man, and he takes on Jameis in combat. Paul wins, despite or perhaps because of what the Fremen view as unusual and unnerving behavior. The Fremen baptize him with a new name, dubbing him Usul. He is permitted to choose a public name, and, asking what they call the mouse, christens himself Muadib. All right, so we have a couple of characters from this episode. Uh, we have Stilgar, who we actually met before, but he is the more major character in this section, uh, the Fremen chief of the Siege Tabar, or Tabor. Is it Tabor? I guess it's Tabor. Sayadina is the Fremen name for the friend of the god priestess who can become the Reverend Mothers. Uh, Jameis, who is one of the members following Stilgar, and Chaney, the daughter of Leot. Any initial impressions? I'll start because I never start. 
I thought the first half of this reading uh, where they kind of focused on the sandworms was really interesting because um, the the adult mature sandworms are dangerous. And then now we find out mm-hmm. that the uh, less mature sandworms are also dangerous. And I just thought that that was just an interesting perspective or um, it was an interesting way to kind of show, I don't know, I sound like a seventh grade English teacher, but like the whole man versus nature kind of, kind of fight. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I, 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 I really like the first half. I liked all of it, but I like the first half, especially where we're focused a lot on sandworms and we learned about how spice is made and all those kinds of things. I thought, I thought the, the, uh, ecological, uh, parts of this reading was, was the most interesting to me. Yeah. It seems like there's like a, I don't know, like a mystery kind of unraveling really, really slowly <laughs> uh, with the ecological stuff. And um, I think the worm stuff is also maybe the most interesting, like the his descriptions. I, I should have put the, the quotes down, but like the description of like how that worm came up to them, you know, like they had like the arc, like the silver arc that like rose up and all the sand was kind of wearing off of it. And they can see like all like the the teeth and they call them yeah, Chris knives in there. Uh, I like that part a lot. Um I have to agree with Amin. I do feel like not just your English teacher, but your seventh grade science teacher pointing to the Krebs cycle and talking about the way that we've clearly seen the relationship, not just between man and nature, but between the different stages of the sandworms. Like Paul is smelling and seeing the spice and can also see or smell or sense aldehydes and acids. So there's some chemical relationship that exists between and it's tied into um, you know, what Kynes and his father later discussed about planet-wide ecology. Yeah, and the fact that they call the worms maker, like, obviously, like, I guess the worms are the one making the spice. Um, I mean, I, that's I'm guessing, uh, af, you know, based off of the name. Uh, and I think Jessica also notes it as well when she she hears that. Making just the spice, eh? I don't know. <laughs> at, at, least, at least making the spice, maybe making other things too. Making a cool ride for some, for some Fremen to, like, Oh, yeah, yes, right we finally on. got to the theme park. <laughs> I don't know why the characters like Jessica are still trying to sanity check themselves. Like, oh, it, certainly it couldn't have been someone riding a worm. Just like <laughs> you're in the desert. Let go of your presumptions. <laughs> yeah. Just, there's a lot of strange stuff happening out here. I think I wasn't the, the biggest fan of the of the kind section. I think it was like a little bit too metaphorical for me. And like, it was like, not sure exactly what's happening and you know like all, all like the i don't know i'm in for like a good dream sequence but like i don't know like this one it, it didn't do it for me like i it, it was hard to read it was it was a difficult read for me that chapter i thought did i read correctly that it's the baby sandworm baby sandworms that cause a pre-spice mass is it because of their activities or yeah, like the younger ones yeah, that's what I took away from this. We don't I... know that they're baby, but it does call them little. Yeah. So I assume they were like the juvenile young sandworms that causes, which is very interesting because uh, like they're uh, just the the term pre-spice mass mm-hmm. is suggestive of the fact that this is like the byproduct of creating spice or the phase that comes before spice is produced. So that was, that was a fascinating 
bit of all of these fascinating parts can't wait to joust with dan are from the kinds chapter i will yes (laughs) i i i have to kind of disagree i while i wasn't i wasn't completely enamored with that chapter i thought that it was interesting and i i enjoyed the back and forth and um of course the fact that this man is delirious and he is hallucinating his dead father um having a very um intellectual and um moral conversation with him and at the same time this other part of his brain is like just shut up and let me die in peace and it's it's quite it it, it was quite a compelling read for me yeah, I have to agree with you. And that's evident to my co-hosts because I wrote like five different quotes down in our discussions and most of them are from this kind segment. But this moment where Liet is been released by the Harkonnens and he's like the best Fremen ever, like he could control a sandworm if he had his maker hooks. He knows better than the other Fremen what all the different smells of the desert mean. And yet, despite all of that, he dies like an off-worlder in the desert and it brings to bear i'm going to jump all over in the segment what his father or didn't catch i guess um he has this view he comes to this epiphany that's different from what his father has been lecturing him on um it says in the quote then has his planet killed him it occurred to kinds that his father and all the other scientists were wrong that the most persistent principles of the universe were accident and error. Like there's no reason that kind should be the one dying in the desert, but there's an accident, there's an error, and now he's subject to the same death as any off-worlder. These chance events have this significant impact on the course of history and many of these significant developments in the Dune universe. And I think Herbert is probing us to think about beyond his universe in ours or others, um, that are the result of random occurrence, that knowledgeable and skilled individuals make mistakes, and those mistakes lead to tragedy or to breakthroughs or to discoveries. And I think it's very telling that this is all happening to him as the planetary ecologist is dying in the desert, sad as it is. I really like Liet Kynes. It's also kind of tragic that he seems to have these moments of clarity and he seems to be on the cusp of something and you feel like, well, if only he lived, we might get to see something come of this. But the fact that he then just dies kind of. Or does he? Because most of the talking in that chapter is from his father who is dead. But well, um... in the cloud moment of being able to lecture him. I gleaned that from the quote, then as his planet killed him, it occurred to Kynes that his father and all the other scientists were wrong, that the most persistent principles of the universe were accident and error. So I took that to mean that he did die, but... Oh, I'm just being yeah. tongue-in-cheek. Just it's not like his father is. was talking to him. It's like his imagination of his father talking to him, right? Yeah. Unless okay. there's something Maybe else going on. Yeah, you know, could... child can imagine what Leah <laughs> would be saying to him, and we'll get to learn. Yeah. Um, But his father does have interesting things to say more than just being proved wrong in Kynes' moment. Um, He notably talks about religion and uh, ecology and says that life improves the capacity of the environment to sustain life. Life makes needed nutrients more readily available. 
it binds more energy into the system. It's true. We would not be around without algae trapping a bunch of uh, carbon (laughs) a couple billion years ago. And he also gives this citation on religion, saying religion and law among our masses must be one and the same. And that clearly ecology and you know the terraforming and t- terrestrial sculpting that he wants to do on Arrakis is such a large product project that it needs the force of religion behind it. It reminded me of the obedience that the Bene Gesserit demand and require of their adherents. It's religion, but it's also power and it's also lineage and it's also militaristic, but it all has the force of religion behind it. So more than one uh, center of power is playing with religion here. And and this also kind of, um, uh, you see echoes of uh, foundation in this, uh, where religion is sort of a means of maintaining control and um, just mm-hmm. like if you inspire religion in the minds of people, you can almost better control them and better maintain law in that sense so um yeah that theme from foundation came to mind oh yeah and kinds father says it outright he says you know tying religion and law will have the dual benefit of bringing both greater obedience and greater bravery you'll be able to create people who will risk anything and obey anything very foundation-esque so this is this is probably a silly question but do you think that this book is pro-religion or anti-religion? It seems like <laughs> um, it seems like parts of it they're, they're saying, well, religion is important for things to happen, but then also, just like in our world, religion also leads to a lot of bad things happening as well. And i I can't tell what I, I can't tell what Frank Herbert's point of view on religion is. I was wondering if any of you had a had an opinion. Our hero is a good thing. I mean. <laughs> uh, well, I, re- well, I think. I think Frank Herbert's opinion on that is summed up by the quote that I think you had already mentioned that the the worst thing that can happen is falling into the hands of a hero. <laughs> I think he does want us to question this for ourselves a good deal, but he is portraying some of the means that religion uses to get to the ends, the ends of the Bene Gesserit, the ends of the Fremen. I don't see it as a sharp critique, more of one of, or celebration. I see it more of exploration, not that, not to be too uh, evasive about my answer. Oh, no, that, that makes, that makes sense. Cause I, I didn't, I didn't feel mm-hmm. like he was solidly on either side of the fence either, but he, he, religion does play a bigger part in this book that, I'm not a huge science fiction reader, but it does play a bigger part in this book than other science fiction I've read. So I was just curious. Mm. If, have you read any like, of Herbert's other works, like The White Plague? I have not. Mm. Maybe that's homework for all of us because religion is portrayed as a pretty multifaceted aspect of human society. And it's other people who call his work science fiction. To me, I, I don't know if <laughs> Herbert would call his books pure science fiction because of how much they engage with topics like this. Well, I think in books like Foundation, like uh, religion is like sort of like a scam, right? Like they're like intentionally like, you know, like uh, making science to be more religious, right? And like they're doing it 
to control the populace, right? And they know it's not like supernatural. They know it's just science, right? Here it's like there are like supernatural elements or like uh, to us to be supernatural. Like like Jessica is like can definitely do supernatural things and oh, Paul can like see the future and like, you know, and the the there's so I don't think it's like a straight scam. Like maybe like they're manipulating people like a little bit more with, with it. Um, but it's not like it's not as like cut and dry, I think, as the foundation is, you know, kind of anti-religious. But you do see Jessica's like resentment and cynicism about how easy it is for her to step into this religious ritual because yeah. like the fact that she is the target and the goal and the the one who will benefit from this um, religious exchange robs her of faith. Like she's not able to believe in it because she knows how it was built. It's everyone else who gets to participate in it. And we see that pretty clearly too. On a related note, what I found interesting is that um, the Fremen whose language is imbued with the most um, religious overtones are people who um, we interestingly find out in this section are actually trying to slowly um, change the landscape of Arrakis um, as Stilgar reveals to Jessica and um, like they literally uh, barter spice for having the the freedom to do this without having surveillance over them. And um, what was fascinating was they said that they're aware that the, these changes will happen so slowly that neither they nor their children nor their mm -hmm. children's children will experience the benefits of making these changes. And um, this kind of also uh, brought to mind how um in uh the remembrance of earth's past series there is something that's going to happen in the future that no one living now or their children are going to necessarily be affected by but what can bring people to care about something that can potentially happen hundreds of years from now and i think that much as that series brings up that question, you see that question raised here. And because of the religious overtones that we see amongst the Fremen, you have to think that their belief in prophecies and these uh, ideas that are very much steeped in a sort of religion may be their motivator for wanting to care about what happens in the future and believe that there is a future where things can be better or different. But again, you see Jessica, the potential Sayadina, reverend mother of all these things is hemmed in from enjoying any of the religious ecstasy of this prophecy. Like she can't participate because... She just has to serve her duty. And you see that even when she's challenged by uh, Jameis, she judges him and we are confident in her assessment that she's like, you know, I could take him. But she can't because that would interfere. It's not that she wouldn't be able to. The reason she can't take him is because it would interfere with how the legend is interpreted by the Fremen. She's hemmed in at every moment. Like imagine if in the story of... Jesus, the Virgin Mary, cold the innkeeper and demanded to stay. Like, yes, she probably could have gotten a place to stay, but that would pretty much interfere with the way that we view that particular story. 
And so she's, I feel like, more constrained in this section than we've ever seen before. Is that because, like, she knows the stories are planted? Like, the all these prophecies that she's able to, like, you know, like, calm response on that, that one thing? Yeah, that's what she is referencing as the missionaria protectiva. Yeah. Jessica says this in instances in the past as well, um, because I think she's told at some point why she doesn't control the Duke to, to, um, to, uh, do, to marry him. Um, yeah, that, that was what it was. Uh, why doesn't she compel the Duke to marry him? And she basically says, if someone does not do something of their own free will, it kind of negates the whole purpose of it. So, um, mule too, right? Right. Right. True. So um, the idea of free will is a very fascinating one when you have characters who can compel other people to do their bidding, but they choose not to because they understand the importance and the significance uh, of free will on a, on a grand, in the grand scheme of things. So, I mean, it might be a spoiler, but like the, you know, if, if it was planted, like who is it planted by and how long ago? Like this seems like these are ancient stories that the Fremen like, no, and they've been waiting for a really long time for them to. Yeah, come they've to been seated. I mean, the Fremen talk about a project that won't be appreciated by their children or even their children's children. That's what the Bene yeah. Gesserit have been doing for tens of thousands of years, hmm. seeding this tradition and as many planets as they can get their hands on, so that should a Bene Gesserit ever come there, she'll be protected. There will be a place for her to align herself with power. Has Spice been like known to be this important for that long? Or is it more of a recent development, relatively recent? Um, the spice is the mechanism for this uh, civilization to travel between the stars. But like, how long has that been? Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, I think all of the recorded history that we've seen, like the Orange Catholic Bible and the, you know, the jihad, the Butlerian jihad, like all of that has only happened when spice has been known to be important yeah yeah because i mean besides spice like bef before the the advent of spice like this doesn't seem to be much of worth to this planet right like people probably wouldn't care and let until they found the you know the spice that that, that does enable you know interstellar travel and that kind of thing so dune you know is set about twenty thousand years in the future so it's on a it's on a time period that it's hard for us to grasp because we've had so much less um, yeah. history to compare against. Um, just to kind of wrap up my thoughts and like, I guess like maybe I spoke a little bit too strongly about like not liking this chapter. It's not that I didn't like it. It's just like, I could tell there was a lot of like important information. It was just harder to read, I think. Um, because like, there's so much like, mm. yeah, metaphor that's happening and like, you had to like, and, and like mysteries and like mysteries that are wrapped in other, in like, in like this fake conversation, you know, this or imagined conversation between him and his father. Um, I don't know. It was just harder for me to read than the other chapters. And that's why I think I didn't like it as much. I think there's a difference. Like it's, it's less action packed and more of like delving into the philosophy and the, yeah. the, the greater mm -hmm. um, the, the thematic elements of the book more versus like the actual, you know, progression of plot. Um, but um, one of the one of my um, most important uh, takeaways, or rather, like 
the the part that stood out to me the most was um, the quote from that section: um, "Men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their planets before now." Oof. His father said, "Nature tends to compensate for diseases, to remove or encapsulate them, to incorporate them into the system in her own way." Um, I found that kind of fascinating because it it's kind of uh, speaks to the resilience of of ecosystems to withstand the harms that that humans have inflicted upon the environment for so long um it's kind of remarkable that we've done so much damage and now i'm speaking of us in our real world us humans um there's there's so much like destruction of the planet that's happened. Like when you really look into it, you just, you find yourself kind of horrified by the, um, the, the sheer impact that we have on our environment. And the fact that the, the earth still continues to, to sustain us is kind of remarkable. And um, I think that this quote very, very poignantly uh, captures that that idea that like nature sort of does so much again? what's that will you read it again yes men and their works have been a disease on the surface of their planets before now his father said nature tends to compensate for diseases to remove or encapsulate them to incorporate them into the system in her own way mm. It's also like you can think of it as uh, evolution, like evolution is a response by nature to changes that are happening. And sometimes these changes are not happening naturally, but they may be happening due to human activity and uh, it changes everything. And I just thought that like that one quote is so loaded with like ideas around our impact on the world. I wanted to query... Um, about the title that we chose for this book, Spannungsbogen, that we chose for this section, uh, the quality, the self-imposed delay between desire for a thing and the act of reaching out to grasp that thing. Who do you think has this and who do you think have we been shown does not have this quality? Well, Jameis definitely doesn't have this quality. (laughs) Yeah, he definitely seems really rash. And I think that Jessica sees that, that like he's been stuck in his own head, like turning this disgrace over and over in his head. And I think Paul sees it too. He recalls one of his teachers saying like the terrified man will fight himself. So he's not acting with uh, this self-imposed delay. So definitely, yeah, Jameis was a good example for that. So maybe based off of your comments earlier, like Jessica would would encompass like the the opposite of that right like if she's really playing the long game here um and like her and the Benny Gesserit are playing the long game to and and not like and and kind of following the prophecy just to uh you know to, just to follow it like maybe like the maybe she encompasses that and it also speaks to um Stilgar's commentary on what makes for a good leader versus not like he repeatedly says that Jameis would not be a good leader because of the way that he behaves um where he's rash and like does not really think through his actions um so it seems that 
that that's clearly why he's not the leader <laughs> and Stilgar is because he kind of he comes with the intention of of taking their water basically killing them when he finds them but then he looks at them and he pauses and he thinks even though water would be precious it would be easier to just kill them and take their water um he he thinks long term and he thinks about who they are before he commits the action so um he definitely has the makings of a good Fremen leader, and it seems to be because of those qualities. And you see it in their laws, too. Do you remember the field rate, the exchange rate for taking someone else's water in the field and then having to repay it? Like 10 to yes. 1. 10 to 1, right? Mm-hmm. If you, you know, have this desire for something and take it immediately when you need it, you'll pay that back 10 to 1. And Jessica, you see, is like, hesitant like trying to be more generous and Stilgar's like you know you're gonna see that there's a good reason for that for that ratio and he also emphasizes take no more than what's absolute necessity so that's another quality that sort of ties into that like how much we will have to pay it back (laughs) yeah (laughs) if that's a speaking of inflation that's just a terrible interest rate that you're gonna have to repay on so yeah take only what you what you need. I also wanted to um, talk about what are your thoughts on Jessica in this section? Because I, I found her to be a little bit different than how we've seen her um, so far. And I think it's been over the chapters, what I've been noticing is sort of like a steady unraveling but like more subtle because on the surface she's able to really control her actions but her thoughts that you you are privy to are are not like are not what you'd expect every time from a Benny Jesuit she has to repeatedly remind herself of her training and try to um try to calm herself like her mind and her thoughts and um push them out of her head so i was wondering if you guys also got that sense as you were reading i was surprised by like her like physical prowess you know like to be able to like best still car uh and then like really like you know take over that like it seemed like before she was more of like like a men like controlling it things mentally you know um rather than like straight like was she like she she like jukes him and like is able to like go over his back and like help hold him or something. Um, so I thought that was, that was pretty surprising. I, I don't know if I noticed any, like her she big change in her of pers- Vulcan nerve pinch on him that yeah know, makes him stop. But I, I didn't get the sense that that was like very forceful or like required a lot of physics. I thought it was just like, here's a pressure point and then you're down, but who knows? And I was thinking like, you know, in the like earlier chapter, like, Jessica like takes the guys out with like using the voice right like and by... tries again you see in this segment tries yeah. to like taunt Jameis and he catches he's like uh uh-uh. uh yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> I did like the part where like uh the still car was like I talked to him he's like oh wait no no, no. you you gotta stop you, you gotta, <laughs> you gotta stop, stop. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, you're not allowed to talk sorry <laughs> he, he keeps it is like a couple times I think he's like he's he like I have so many questions but 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 <laughs> oh but you can't, can't talk <laughs> <laughs> yeah but anyway I, I got the impression like that was more of like her skill right and here like she did like shows like another skill like she's even more of like a superhero <laughs> like yeah. her, her skills are just compounding on top of each other you know 
But you see that she does use that voice and Stilgar like gangs up on her. There's a very like being punished by mom and dad vibe after Paul kills Jameis because Jessica's like, "Uh uh-oh, he's like elated and proud and being fawned over for like the worst part of himself for killing a man. So need to like crush him into the sand and make him feel terrible. And she does that pretty unapologetically with the voice. I think a good quote um, coming straight from Jessica's thoughts, her stream of consciousness uh, that speaks to this is the mind can go either direction under stress toward positive or toward negative on or off. Think of it as a spectrum whose extremes are unconsciousness at the negative end and hyperconsciousness at the positive end. The way the mind will lean under stress is strongly influenced by training. And um, I found that fascinating because Throughout the chapters after you um, read this, which is earlier on in the section, I believe, um, you do see her grappling with both these extremes in her own thinking. Um, At least that is the sense that I got. Um, And this training of which she speaks, it's not coming to her as instinctively anymore. Um, She has to repeatedly remind herself. So um, it, it speaks to Paul's training as much as her own and also anyone who is trained in any type of combat um uh it it speaks to the the the, the, the battle that's within the mind in a sense yeah and you see i think in the parting words of one of the chapters that jessica's noticing like okay there's a party of 40 and how many of them are trained in military readiness 40 like everyone who is out in this itch is mentally and physically trained to fight and as we see here to kill because they don't do this whole like touch football single blood half measure also do we talk about the fact that we find out that fremen actually rides sandworms like touch upon that yeah <laughs> yeah we, I, I, I talked about it earlier but yeah that was uh I mean, like, we don't see much of it, right? She kind of sees in the distance, right? Like the- No, we, we, we talked about it in the form of her, like, self-doubt, but, like, just yeah. the sheer fact that there's so much about the Fremen that, of course, we don't know yet. But, like, mm-hmm. the fact that there is this, like, perilous force of nature out there and somehow they've mastered a way to ride sandworms, which are... Mm-hmm. And and they have a deep, it seems when they talk about sandworms, like they don't have like as much a fear of sandworms as they do a reverence for them because they call them makers. So it almost makes sense that they've learned to coexist with them. But this is like a really fascinating way in which they have managed to coexist with them, like almost like using them for their purposes. And you still see that divergence between the people who are of the sand and people who are not when Jessica's saying like, well, why would they call a worm? Like, why would they help us? Right, exactly. Maybe they weren't helping us. Maybe they were just calling a worm, which is like an unthinkable thought. Like, why would you summon a worm to you? But Fremen are just built a little different, I guess. Right. And then and then you also see the difference in in like how how their their minds work totally differently. Like the culture is so different that like when Paul is hesitating to kill this man, they believe that he's he's like kind of teasing him and 
playing with him like a like a mm-hmm. predator would would with their prey but yeah, it unnerves them to see him. right and then the fact when he just reveals like oh i was trying not to kill him they're kind of like oh like like we never thought about about that of not killing so it it's it's like these moments where these cultural differences come to light are kind of fascinating it's interesting how we see prescience really emphasized in Paul. Like he takes all this spice, he starts to OD, he gets a little addicted, and he starts to see the future. But there's some things that the Fremen, due to their conditioning, they just see as foregone. Like you have water, therefore, like you have power, you have the ability to save lives, and you have wealth. And we see the way this duel is playing out. It hasn't happened yet, but like, why won't Paul just get to it? It's obvious that he's going to win. And they see that as clearly as any other prescient vision. So they're unnerved when it takes a long time to happen because to them it's obvious. So are you saying the the Fremen also have the the visions, the the, the prescient visions of the future? I think it's likely. I'm not sure, but it's brought on by spice, and they clearly eat a lot of spice. So it's not yeah. impossible. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't even. I, I guess I didn't catch that. I thought that was something with him in particular, not not because of the spice, but but yeah. Continue like, to see how that evolves. I'm not sure, to yeah. be honest. So we'll see. I, I do think that that's a good question because I, I did also wonder like does the this does the spice affect Paul and Jessica more because they're they're not used to it the way that the Fremen would be. Um do you become desensitized to the effects of spice, like the the mind altering uh, effects of spice after you've been on a diet of spice pretty much your whole life? Um, or does it continue to have a profound effect upon your body? I thought they said that no one could leave Arrakis. And I think that's because the spice is too good to give up. True. But I just wonder if there's desensitization of the mind-altering effect mm. specifically, like a drug. Like you know, people who take drugs over a very long period of time, they don't experience the same mind-altering effects as someone who takes it for the first time. So that that just made me wonder. But um, I think that so much of their there's so much like prophecy and uh, metaphorical. Uh, dialogue amongst them that it seems like there is definitely that that may be coming from spice probably Mm. question for the future (laughs) speaking of future (laughs) there's a moment where paul decides to do something different um he was supposed to go by muadib but he makes a little a little edit um, he decides, can I be called Paul Muadib because I don't want to give up the name that my father gave me. And earlier, he's ruminating on the fact that he has had these um, these uh, visions of of a lot of horrible things happening in the future in his name. Um, so he feels like any little thing he might change from his visions could prevent such a future because that's what he wants to do. Um, which I thought was interesting because um, Paul Muad'Dib doesn't sound nearly as badass as just Muad'Dib. It doesn't have that impact, you know. But 
it's interesting that he 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 muses on the fact that I did a different thing um and I don't know what the significance of that will be but it it made me wonder yeah I agree it doesn't sound uh doesn't sound as cool <laughs> that it's that Paul in there I thought I was gonna <laughs> say Atreides right like why why Paul I guess I figured he would keep his family name but maybe like the the significance is different because like he was given that he was given the name Paul by his father right he chose to go the hyphenation route, but Atreides yeah. Muad'Dib. Modern man. <laughs> yeah. Modern man. Atreides Muad'Dib is a little bit, somehow it's not that many more letters, but it seems oh. like, like more of a mouthful. But it sounds cool. Usul hyphen Lisan al Gaib hyphen Muad'Dib hyphen Atreides. I think it's cute. Yeah. So what, what's the, I guess I, the one thing I didn't catch is like, why do they, why does he have to have two names? Like what's why is why is the Asul name so secret? Public key, private key, damn, <laughs> obviously. Like, is it only lemon? Like, is it really only like? Do the other people have multiple names? Like, does like what is uh, Stilkar's name outside of the? Maybe the he doesn't trust speech? you enough to tell you, Dan. Maybe. <laughs> but yeah, I do get the sense that there's like an in-group aspect to the Fremen tribes, and like this is a name that. Only like if you know, you know. Can you call him Usul? That's more intimate. Yeah. And I guess based off of that, it almost seemed like a secret code word that only people who are in the inn would know to call him. So it establishes like a bond of trust amongst them. Um, so I thought that was kind of kind of cool. Um, I once got into a final club because I knew the name. That was like not the public name, so I think it still has power. <laughs> uh, okay, did, well, did you guys have anything else, or like, there's there's a lot in here. I don't know if we kind of jumped around and covered everything. We didn't cover um, what Talia calls this um, this section between uh, Kynes and his father. We didn't cover that. Um, which part? I feel like I chatted about him and his dad. I think you had a name for this for this section, a very good name. <laughs> I do imagine that Kynes' father also has the voice of James Earl Jones and <laughs> speaks to him as uh, maybe not a voice in the clouds because there's no clouds here, but maybe uh, a voice in, in the dust clouds um, like Mufasa speaks to Simba. <laughs> a voice in the spice. A voice in the spice. There you go. Or the or the pre-spice mass bubbling up under the earth. <laughs> yeah, scary, scary way to go. I think in the movie, it's they couldn't help themselves in the drama, and they have him just swallowed, or have her just swallowed by a sandworm. Um, but in the book, it's just you know the desert goes boom. Okay, well, thanks for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes, reading lists, and all the other stuff we put up there. Leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And join us next episode for season seven, episode seven, covering book two, Wadib, chapters 12 to 16 of Dune by Frank Herbert.